distorted, that which is perverted. And will we see that displayed in our culture today? Sin at its worst, turned into perversion, life-destroying perversions. I was reminded or thought of this term this week in some of my many hours in the car. I'm a little hesitant here. I don't want to unduly call names. Let's just say I was listening to a Christian radio broadcast and Rosaria Butterfield was being interviewed. For me, with her, her testimony of conversion, remarkable conversion. What's the title of her leading book? Something of an Unexpected Convert. I'll get it in a moment. But the interviewer was, after the break, coming back in and wanting to, and I was surprised this particular group was interviewing her, given her ecclesiastical credentials and connections being most conservative and most reformed. Um, But I was reminded of a statement Dr. Cairns made to us in seminary that you can often tell more about someone's theological position and their theological understanding by their incidental remarks than by their direct statements. And it was an incidental remark coming back from the break that this person said that we have this wonderful guest today and uh, began to speak of her as a seeker after truth. And even said that even before her conversion, she was seeking truth. Well, that wouldn't have been her own description of herself. And I thought, here's someone caught up in perverse sin. Someone that was given to the world's wisdom. Well, the scripture said, and I'm sure she would affirm, the world by wisdom knew not God. Maybe she would affirm something. Well, she wouldn't affirm it. It's in a hymn, and she's in a Psalms-only church. But the hymn we sing, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. But there was an Arminian bias underneath the interviewer's comment. I'm sure well-intentioned, but an incidental remark that manifested a theological position. Well, enough of the systematic theology sidelight there, but iniquity, that which is distorted and perverted. David doesn't shrink back from speaking and using this term with regard to himself. But in the experience of forgiveness, it's not only the need of forgiveness that is outlined in these terms and these synonyms for sin itself. But understand here, there's a desire for forgiveness that is here. And I think desiring forgiveness really is one of the most telling differences between the regenerate and the unregenerate soul. The awakened soul desires to be forgiven. The awakened soul possesses an overwhelming recognition of his need. Here's Bunyan's pilgrim with an overpowering burden pressing upon his back. I think one of our children's books we had for our girls growing up had a a better picture of Bunyan's pilgrim than I did. 
Maybe it was my early and slight experience with camping where I envisioned his pilgrim with a backpack. There were times I've been on the Appalachian Trail where my pack was a little bigger and a little heavier than I was liking it to be. The burden depicted in our little version was an overwhelming burden that Pilgrim was carrying. To understand the need of forgiveness and then desire to come out from under the oppressive weight of sin. Here's, I say, a soul that's awakened. Because the unawakened soul doesn't desire forgiveness. The unawakened soul desires license. He desires to excuse his sin. Ultimately doesn't see the need of forgiveness. But he that covers his sin shall not prosper. And so as David puts before us the experience of forgiveness, we see that he appeals for it. In verses 3 and 4, David speaks of a season prior to this appeal. He says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. You ever praise God for the seasons in which He won't let you alone? Again, that's a renewed heart. And that's a loving Father. Day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Here's his experience before that appeal in verse 5. And as we look at this psalm, and we've been looking at Romans, I'm reminded, and I've been very taken back for many years now with a little bit of the contrast between our psalm and Romans chapter 3. Because Romans 3, as we found, speaks of a point in which men convinced of sin that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Here is a silence that's commendable. Because what Paul's been dealing with there is the Jewish objector who sees some difference between himself and those wicked Gentiles. But yet when the case is put before us, Jew and Gentile alike, a subject of God's law, a transgressor of God's law, and condemned by God's law, and unable to do anything to save themselves and come out from under that condemnation, what does it do? It it shuts the mouth. There are no excuses to render. But here there's a, a silence, there's a shut mouth that is not commendable. David says and speaks of keeping silence. It's a silence here that is holding back, not from giving excuse for self, giving a a self-righteous presentation of self. It was a silence in holding back from a confession of what was true of himself. And what does confession mean? Do you remember our New Testament vocabulary when it comes to confess? The Greek term underneath it is homo logeo. Word, logos, homo, same. The same word, to to say the same thing about my sin that God says is biblical confession. David has held back from this. 
His refusal of confession has left him physically sick. His moisture has turned to the drought of summer. There's a weight upon David. The misery of guilt. But David, by the wooing of the Spirit, overcomes this stubborn refusal. I said this morning, one of the overwhelming impressions I have in reading the life of David is the consistently right views of God that he held. But there were a couple times where David shrunk back from that. You think of the time when they were bringing the ark to Jerusalem and Uzzah touched the ark and the Lord smote Uzzah. And the whole procession, the whole proceeding was put to a stop and they, they take the ark away into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And it said David was afraid of the Lord that day. It was an inappropriate fear. He should have understood what had transpired. But there's a, there's a delay. And here, David, can we say who knew better? Engages in an inappropriate delay. He shrinks back from communion with his God. He shrinks back from confessing his sin. David, thankfully, and it is the experience of each believer, the Spirit woos and brings us back to right views of our God. Right views of the means whereby God justifies the ungodly. And he confesses his sin. And then, of course, forgiveness is granted. And that's where we come to the opening verses that Paul makes use of and we saw in Romans this morning. What happens to transgression? It's forgiven. It's lifted. It's removed from us. What happens to sin? It's covered. It is hidden from God's sight. What happens to iniquity? It's not imputed to us. It's not reckoned to our account. These are Gospel words. These are Romans words. But where did Romans get them? From the Old Testament. The language here... I was happy to hear us sing again tonight his robes for mine. To him born of a fresh understanding of imputation. And you think of the words used for this in the Old Testament. Some striking examples. We would see in the Old Testament story of Judah when he sins with Tamar. He sees her and it said he thought her to be an harlot. It's one of our words for justification. He thought her a harlot. He imputed that to her. He reckoned her to be that. And she wasn't. When Eli saw Hannah there at the tabernacle, praying and weeping and asking God for a son, he thought she was drunk. I've always been impressed with that. You know that the church is at a low ebb When someone is pouring their heart out to God in prayer and the first thought that comes to the preacher is there's another drunk. 
Hannah was moved by a different spirit. But he thought her to be drunk. He imputed drunkenness to her. He didn't see a sober, prayerful woman. He saw a drunkard. Well, there's the language of justification. When God doesn't see our iniquities. When God does see Christ instead. These are the stages, and we could elaborate more on these. It's a powerful psalm, even in its emotion. But I want to come, secondly, to consider something of David's enjoyment of forgiveness. It is the great privilege, and can we also say the great duty of believers to take God at His Word. When God says that He has removed our iniquities from us as far as the east is from the west, He means it. And we're to believe it. And you think of this man who has acknowledged here that his condition was of such a nature, he feels so oppressed, so burdened under with the guilt of his sin, that his moisture's turned to the drought of summer. And yet, what does this psalm show us at the opening and at the end? Oh, the blessednesses of the forgiven man. Happinesses of this man. When he comes to verse 7, he says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs. Songs of deliverance. Singing. You ever wonder about song? What we sing about? What the world finds occasion to sing about? I know it's the old joke, but they said, what do you do when you play a country song backwards? Can't do that anymore, I don't guess. Well, I guess some computer somewhere would let you, but you know, you could spin the LPs backwards. You know, you get your wife back, you get your truck back, you get your job back. Songs of loss, songs of sorrow, trouble, songs of God's people, songs of deliverance. To be delivered from the misery and the guilt of sin. And in verse 11, the closing of the psalm, It's almost as if the singing isn't enough. Shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. The joy of forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. Is it not your experience, if you've not seen it, perhaps in your own life, you see it at times in the lives of others, that the new believer is filled with Joy, filled with zeal. And then it seems that as the the years go by, some of that joy and the freshness of conversion seems to wane. I don't think that should be the experience of the Christian. I'm saying it's just sadly a common experience. One of the reasons that the zeal and joy of the new convert, the new believer, is so much 
at a higher level is because the sense of forgiveness is fresh. What has brought him to Christ is a conviction of sin. If he's truly saved, the Spirit has worked in him to convince him of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And to know forgiveness of sin, to come out from under the guilt and bondage of that, to know that he's not headed for hell, he's headed for heaven. There's a joy, there's a spring in his step, there's a song in his heart, there's even a shout. Well, we use the phrase often, Lord, don't ever let me get used to being saved. There may be a little incidental in our theology that gets exposed when we're only joyful Christians in the the honeymoon days of the soul, if you will. That's not to comment on marriages starting happy and going sour. They should be on an ascending scale too. But I say, how do we maintain the freshness and zeal of the new believer? How do we, well, here's David, quite an experienced saint, decades in the kingdom. And he's speaking of songs of deliverance and shouts of joy and oh, the blessednesses of the forgiven man. Well, it's again constantly working through the gospel. Not looking at the gospel as that thing I did when I raised my hand or I signed that card. But looking at the wisdom and power of God in being just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. To be more and more impressed with the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then the simplicity that is in Christ. One of the things, I know I've mentioned it to you from different texts and from different directions, but one of the things that continues to overwhelm my soul in coming to a better understanding of the Bible's system of theology, if you will, covenant of grace the person and work of Christ the second man is to just see God's purpose to see the condescension of Christ to see the mystery of him taking into union with himself our nature I thought about that speaking to our brother Greg in a recent visit We don't know the details, the particulars. We know that Old Testament saints were absent from the body, present with the Lord. Is that a place right now? You know, the sci-fi brain starts going. Is it just kind of a dimension? Whatever. But Jesus said in the upper room, when he spoke of his ascension, of his departure, remember the bodily ascension, the bodily departure of Jesus now going to the presence of the Father in our nature. It was going to be joined to our nature that he said, I go to prepare a place for you. I just wonder of the wisdom and the knowledge and the experience of that God-man 
in preparing a place for us. David shouting for joy, knowing more of his Savior. Letting his experience, perhaps even from this sad chapter of his life, a little deeper knowledge about his own sinfulness and his own fallen nature to bring him to a little deeper knowledge of the experience and power of the gospel. To know something that we'll read later in Romans of where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. David here is speaking of joy. The enjoyment of forgiveness. But quickly, I want to look also at the effects of forgiveness. David here speaks, if you look in verse 8, it says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Commentators struggle with whether David is the speaker here or if it's the Lord. It seems at least, my thoughts in wrestling through it, that it's probably David here. And much as in Psalm 51 where he passes from that season of low esteem as it were in his sin and withdrawal from the things of God to bringing sacrifices afresh with joy. He speaks here of instructing his neighbor, guiding him, of asking them not to be as the horse or mule which have no understanding and their mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. But David engages in service. In Psalm 51 he says, My tongue shall speak aloud of thy righteousness. Then thou shalt be pleased with sacrifices. And here he speaks of sharing that with others. The effects of forgiveness. One of the greatest attributes, I believe, of those who have been forgiven is their willingness to forgive others. Gospel hearts don't hold grudges. Gospel hearts, when they are confronted with the sins of others, are mindful of their own sins. Gospel hearts think of the magnitude of the forgiveness that has been necessary for us. And they're very happy to see others from God and from ourselves render forgiveness. Is it not part of the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Does Paul not tell us in Ephesians 4, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. A gospel heart that is enjoying forgiveness has the effect in its own heart and life of being happy to render forgiveness. You think of those workers in the vineyard whose hearts were bitter toward those that were brought in at the 11th hour. 
They didn't have a gospel heart. We should be rewarded more than they. Think in your own experience. Maybe you haven't known a person had to put feet to the prayer as it were. But how willing and happy are you for a notorious sinner? Maybe late in life. Maybe on a deathbed. To be brought savingly to Jesus Christ. How happy are you for them to receive the same heaven as you? If you understand the gospel, you will be happy for them to be received on the same terms of grace. See, there's no room for boasting. There's no room for bitterness in a gospel heart. And I think it quite fitting. Paul finds occasion to make such use of an Old Testament text with the language of imputation and giving us a New Testament explanation of the gospel. I trust the Lord will bless His Word to our hearts tonight. Lord, we pray that You would indeed help us even in wrestling with these familiar words to have something of the joy, the songs of deliverance, the shouts of joy be ours. Lord, take us to our homes. Take us to our varied occupations. Help us to be lights shining in this crooked and perverse generation. Lord, give us such testimony that there will be those that ask a reason of the hope that lies within us. Our hopes aren't built and resting on circumstances the resting on the power of God. So send us forth with that knowledge and the joy that flows from it tonight. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.